uh, Christology. We've been for a while. Study Christ. Before we get started, though, I actually learned something today. But I don't know if any of you, the rest of you, are sitting here like, ah. Rob pronounced Deramuth? 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 I don't know, Deramuth. Am I the only one? No, absolutely not. The rest of you are like, Knowledge that you can ask 
that humility and determination to live a life of prudence that matters, that does the right thing, that isn't just breathing us head knowledge, that they seem to do the same thing. So we look first at redemption, our, our salvation. What is, what is that a salvation from? We're really going to go kind of back. None of this is like, because you never heard this one before, like, here. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is, these are going to be a lot of things like, yeah, I did this. Either you term I understand or concepts that are familiar to me. But I want you to kind of make, make don't ever get so used to ideas or concepts or terminology that you're not able to describe them. But at any moment, one of these terms can be brought to your mind and you could you actually know what it means. You describe it in your own words to somebody else. And you know when you, when you kind of become too familiar with something is and if, if somebody, maybe a stranger, would come up to you and say, like, what is redemption? You'd be like, uh, um, uh, uh, see, wait, what do you think? Right? You, you know these terms, but you don't really know them. You don't understand them. You haven't accepted them. Or if somebody were to walk up to you and say, like, what's your favorite artist? Or what did you do for breakfast this morning? You're not nervous about that. You know these things. They're familiar to you, but you also know them. You know them experientially. This needs to be true of these Doctrines. So they're not just terminology terms you've heard, things like, yes, I've heard that word before, but you're actually able to describe it, to put it into your own words. So make that your goal as you go through some of these things, to not just be like, yes, I know this, but, oh, actually, that's phenomenal, that's fantastic, that's incredible, this is helpful. Understand these things in simple terms, to be able to put it into your own words. But what are we being saved from? God is doing his work. Christ is doing his work. What is he doing in his salvation? What's he saving us from? Our sin. Our sin is consequences of eternal torment. We wanted to talk about it. God made a perfect world with perfect rules. Everything was in perfect harmony. But what happened? Adam and Eve, they rebelled. They defied the living, holy God. And thus all of humanity was plunged the curse. So much of the time when we wrestle and struggle with things further down the road, when we're having a hard time understanding how God can judge people or why there's so much evil in the world, we haven't rewound far enough. Back to the garden, back to when God made man perfect. We don't really appreciate who God is and all of his glory. We don't appreciate or understand just how significant God is, how different from us he is. And so when we get to judgment, or we see the world in the state that it's in, we have a hard time with that. We need to make sure we're going back far enough to understand who God is and what He made and what we did as, as humans, what Adam did in his rebellion. So we're plunged under the, the curse. But even as the curse fell, a promise was made for a coming redeemer from the very, very beginning of sin. God makes a promise. He makes a promise that in time a redeemer would come. That there would be hope, even in our rebellion, even in our sin, even in our spitting in the face of, of God. God made us in love. He loves us. And that never stopped. There was never a moment where God says, No more love for you, only perfect. The heartbeat of God for humans is to love them, but He's still got. So there still is a curse. There still is. A hell, but there is a promise of a redeemer. 
His magnificent holiness required our destruction, but his steadfast love moved him to promise redemption. He would pay the price, and we could be saved. Right? That's that's this idea that the price, the new sin, the wages of that sin is death. That's the way it's about that, that God has set it up. That payment must be made. The idea in redemption is that that price is paid by someone who's not yourself. You don't end up in hell forever. The Christ will pay this price. So, that was a promise that was made in, in redemption, but it's just a promise at that point in the garden. Redemption had not been purchased. It had been promised, but it hadn't been made yet. And then there's this period of time between the garden and the cross where God is weaving into the fabric of history. He's using history, using lives, using time to weave this beautiful, vibrant, illustrated diagram of this coming ultimate redemption. Remember the threefold work of Christ, the gospel we talked about. There will be prophets, there will be priests, and there will be kings. There will be disciples of sin and consequences, repentance and restoration again and again and again and again through the course of history between the garden and the cross. It's all painting a picture, making it very clear to us the significance of a, of a redeemer and then the significance of Christ, the, how, how important, how essential it was that Christ be that redeemer. Because there, there was no other hope, there was no other chance. Animals couldn't save us. All of these kings, even David himself, couldn't save us. They were all human. They all failed. None of them could save us, ultimately. None of us could bring us back into union with Christ, where we can actually behold him face to face, where God has now turned his face away from us. We cannot behold him. And so each of these offices that we look at will bring out some very critical aspect of what it means for God to redeem us and what it means for Christ to redeem us, not some other creature. But then, at the right time, right, so there's all this history, but then at the right time, the picture was complete and it was time for reality to arrive, for, for Christ to be born. At that time, Christ the Redeemer came. He came to fulfill the times of anticipation, the covenants of expectation, and to usher in a new covenant of a realized redemption. When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. So that doesn't mean that there won't be time between when the promise is made and when the promise is kept, when it's realized. But we are now, us, we are able to look back to the cross and see the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and see all of that as the, the actual victory, the, the redemption having been completed. Where anyone else in the Old Testament is looking forward to it. Hoping that Christ, hoping that God would keep his promise to bring a redeemer. We're able to look back. In that sense, we have something greater. So, as we look over the next two weeks of these three offices, we need to keep in mind that this bigger picture of Christ is our redeemer. And he's working out of steadfast love to open to us the way of salvation from the curse. Understand that he's working. For us, because he loves us. Understand that we are hopeless without this work. And so the call then, obviously, necessarily, is to respond to his work. 
His redeeming work in repentance for the forgiveness of our sins and the effective eternal redemption of our souls. Right, so as we look at Christ, we're looking at what he did, what it means. We're not just filling our heads with more knowledge. It's a risk of studying theology. Now, I would argue that you could never get what you need if you're not studying theology. You're going to miss the point. You're going to have a very flavorless Christian life. But if all you do is just study the doctrines and get more information into your brain, you don't act on it, you don't behave on it, you don't appreciate it actually in the way that you live, in the way that you think, then it's just, it's just an increasing head on that you actually become dangerous to you. You become self-righteous. You think you're all that. You start to judge other people instead of loving other people. You're not seeing yourself rightly. So I want to avoid that. I don't want that to happen. I want you to see and appreciate exactly who Christ is and what he has done and what it means for you. Right? We need to go all the way back to the garden. We need to understand our state underneath the wrath of God so we can appreciate what exactly Christ has done in his work of redemption. So there are all these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. This week, again, because we spent a bit of time on background, we're really just going to look this week at Christ as a prophet, and next week, king of the priest and king. So Christ is a prophet. What does this mean? What are we going to look at Christ as prophet? Christ, he's the ultimate prophet. He redeems our communication with God. Christ, the ultimate prophet, redeems our communication with God. But what is a prophet? Again, we use these words so like, yes, sweet, I know exactly what a prophet is. What's he moving? But do you actually, what is a prophet? What comes to your mind when you think of a prophet? Um, I kind of think of a mystic wizard figure. He's kind of aloof. He's a little bit like a handout character. Um, he has a gnarly magic stick. And a lot of the times we see these sticks, we're like, what tree is that from? But he's got a gnarly magic stick in one hand, and he's got some big, like, tone hook in his other arm. And it's enormous, you're like, why would we carry that around? It's an iPad, you know. He's still got one. He's got uh, secret powers and knowledge. He's got a connection with the spiritual realm, like a, whatever universe he's in. He's kind of got the force where he can communicate or harness unseen forces for his own, probably nefarious purposes. That's kind of what I think of when I think of a prophet. Uh, but is this how the Bible portrays prophets? Well, kind of, not, not really. Um, but in some senses, uh, prophets were people were specifically set apart to behave as a connection point between the divine and the mortal. So don't just think like prophets of the one true God, right? The Bible talks of lots of different kinds of prophets, lots of prophets of other deities, but there are always this connection point between like normal human beings and, and deity. They're, they're set apart to behave as a connection point between the divine and the world. Ability to communicate. Do you remember like the prophets of Baal and Elijah, where they go head to head and have this little battle? Um, which I thought not really being a battle because Baal's not a real God and God is a real God. And but so we call the prophets of Baal. These characters are recognized as being separate from the rest. Kind of, they're special. They have a purpose of behaving as a go-between for uh, their people and whatever their deity is. 
They are by simply spokespeople, spokespersons for God. Now I think before we jump, like, okay, sweet, we got a we got a description. Now we have the obvious question in mind, you know, why do we need this? Why do we need a prophet? Why does God need a spokesperson? Why does God need a prophet? Why not just speak directly to your believers? This would be especially confusing if you if you just started in Genesis and you see God walking the garden without a need just kind of chatting. They, they have this direct communication line. So what in the world happened between God just talking with people, and now there's, there's apparently there's these prophets, there's these go-betweens, that somehow there's a pattern that's been fixed between the divine and the mortal, and you can't just talk to God anymore. God doesn't talk to you anymore. You need a person, a connection point, a prophet, to actually have this communication channel. Like, what happened? You know what happened. We sinned. We spat in the face of God, and God turns his face to we need to understand that. We, we, we're, we're so used to living in the new covenant, living, taking for granted what Christ has done, who's begun to have us, that we forget that because of the curse, the default state, before we repent, before we trust in Christ, we don't get direct access to God. We don't, we don't have this one-way community. We're not walking in the garden with God. We, we spat in his face. He cursed us. He's turned his face. We're out of the garden. And now, if we're going to have any sort of communication with God, God has to initiate that. God has to speak to us. And if he doesn't, we don't hear from God anymore. That's the consequences. Separation from God. That's, that's like the epitome of what hell is. It's punishment separate from God. And we need to, we need to remember that and appreciate that. And not be so quick to just think, yeah, of course. I can talk, talk with God. I can pray to God. You can, but it's a tremendous blessing given to us by the sacrifice of Christ. If there were no Christ, there was no redemption, if, and God chooses not to speak to us, we're hopelessly lost in our sin with no chance of ever communicating or understanding what are we supposed to do now. And so even just the fact that there were prophets was a tremendous blessing of God, that, that he would choose to communicate with us at all. And in the Old Testament, like these, these prophets, they're special people. And they're called specifically by God. They have this uh, direct communication, and that's been a relay, right? Think of Moses up on the mountain, he's communicating with God, and then he brings that back to the people. Elijah, the same sort of thing. Let's look at some of these verses. And it's, I mean, it's just everywhere in the Old Testament. And we need to remember that God doesn't change. He's not different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We don't look at the Old Testament and say, I'm so glad God's not like that anymore. He is. He's exactly. He does not change. We're under a new covenant. We have Christ, the Redeemer. That's why this study is so important to look at these different offices, to understand the, the work that Christ has done, so that when we look at this, it's not like this anymore. Not because God changed, but because Christ came and did his work. Let's look at some verses. Ezekiel 20, 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me and acted treacherously against me. So God's not telling this directly to the people. He's talking to a prophet. And then that prophet will relay that information. This one being against, they're still sinning. Haggai 1, 3-5. 
Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses? Well, this house lies desolate. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So apparently the people of God are living in lavish, nice houses, and the temple, where they were supposed to worship God, is in disarray. So the word of the Lord comes by the prophet Haggai, saying, what do you do? Why are you living in such nice houses when my house is destroyed? Build my house first, and then build your house. Consider your ways. Making known to the people the preferences, the character and nature of God, and then communicating that to the people so that they would hopefully consider that and behave according to the preferences of God. This makes sense, of course. If there's a God and preferences, and we know what they are, we should behave according to them. God is over us. God is our creator. The things that we know about God, we are to behave according to them. Not to consider them and weigh them like, oh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. When we know the words of the Lord, we obey them. Because he is over us. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The word which came to Jeremiah of the Lord, from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go announce the potter's house. There I will announce my words to you. Then when I went down to the potter's house, there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hands of the potter, so he remade it to another vessel that pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like a clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. So Jeremiah gets the word from the Lord. This is my son word. Picture the Lord is doing directly to Jeremiah. Jeremiah gets this, he writes it down, and he delivers it to the house of Israel. And this just happens again and again and again, all over the place. In the Old Testament, the prophet receives the word, the holy gods, and then he's tasked with delivering it to the simple mankind. You can just very clearly see the hierarchy, the structure. You, you, Sin, you are in sin, you are a sinful people, and I cannot directly communicate with you. But because I love you, I don't he's not obligated. But because the Lord, in life, the same way that he made us, because he loves us, he continues to communicate with us, continues to give us his word, and he does it in his own way. He does it in the right way, through a prophet, to ensure that there is still this hierarchy, this structure. We don't we're not just friends of God by people. But there needs to be a process in place so that we understand that God is holy, He's above us, He's our Creator. And that for us to have any sort of union or communication with Him, it needs to be a very special, a very specific way. And in the case of the prophets, this idea of a human interpreter, a human voice box for God. And this is it's a mercy of God to communicate with us. We've kind of spoken about that. And yet, it's still so pitiful. This need this, to, to speak with God, to have this relationship. It's sad. This was not the intention of God with people. He didn't set up prophets at the very beginning. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's sad that it has to be this way. And I think as, as believers, people who, who are living under the new covenant, that, that have the redemption of Christ, that have had our sins removed, and we do have direct communication, we're, we're a little bit too quick to kind of forget this was the configuration, this was the setup. And it's, it's sad that it was that way. And without Christ, it is this way. 
I want to speak as a, as a believer who loves God. I want to speak with God directly. I know I can't because of my sin. I'm too defiled. My eyes have been opened to that. And yet, oh, that we might. We need a redeemer. We need something to cleanse us, to remove our guilt. All of those things that have turned God's face from us, that, that hold us at enmity, that fix that chasm between God and ourselves. We need those things removed. We know unless they are, God's face cannot turn to us. He's too holy. He's too just. And he will not compromise his character. He cannot. But if by some means our guilt could be removed, our sin could be dealt with, paid for, and of course, God would, in love, turn back towards us, and we could have a restored communication with Him. And of course, then, this is where Christ enters the scene. This is where Christ's prophet, in the work of redemption, becomes incredible. Then when we read in John 1, there's a bit of a section here, we're going to read it, this is when we have this kind of this setup, this configuration of prophets, and our sin, God turning his face against us, this chasm fixed, where we're hopeless. We don't like this configuration. We need to be redeemed. We want to speak with God again. And then we read in John 1, it should thrill us with the coming of Christ, that something different now is being promised. 